Amen. Well, good morning, Courtright. I am very happy to be with here with you sharing this morning. Uh, my name is Lindsay Sitzma. This is my first time teaching at Courtright. And if you don't know who I am, I am married to Justin, who is Courtright's pastor of worship and outreach. He was the guy that was just leading you in worship. And Justin and I, along with our daughter Iris, we have been part of the Courtright community for about a year and a half now. And Justin and I have been married for over 11 years. And I have to admit, I don't remember a ton about our wedding ceremony. I think like adrenaline plus love plus time has kind of clouded my memory. The day seems to have gone by so quickly. Uh, and we don't have a wedding video, so I can't go back and reference that. But I do remember in our wedding ceremony, and, and Justin says he remembers this as well, is that my dad, who performed our wedding ceremony, he shared how important it was to be able to apologize to your spouse as, as part of loving your spouse. You know, marriage has this way of bringing out the best in us, and it has a way of bringing out the absolute worst of us and putting our flaws under a microscope. And it's important to kind of maintain a, a healthy, reconciled relationship to be able to say, I'm sorry. I know I hurt you. And in my 23-year-old brain, I was 23 when I got married, I remember thinking that, well, that doesn't sound so complicated. I mean, to admit when you have done something wrong, to apologize when you have wronged someone, and to acknowledge that you have hurt them, that can't be that hard. And even though I cannot hear the dry, sarcastic chuckles coming from a congregation, I am by myself right now, I am sure some of those are happening in homes <laughs> across Guelph. Because I think, and, and certainly not just in marriage, but I think that we know as we grow and we get older that admitting that you are wrong, admitting and acknowledging when you have hurt someone and apologizing and asking for forgiveness, it's really hard. There is something inside of us that seems to fight against this. You know, we don't want to sit in this place of acknowledging our sin. Maybe it's because of pride. Maybe it's because we live in a culture that tells us never to show weakness or vulnerability. Maybe it's depending on how much you have hurt someone or how dire the consequences are for kind of what you've done wrong our failures can feel crippling. And I think we avoid it because of that. And yet failure is part of being human. I mean, we sin, we hurt other people, we hurt God, we engage in destructive behaviors. We go against what God would have us do and who he would have us be. And I think sometimes that happens accidentally or unintentionally. And I think sometimes we willing and knowingly do things that are wrong. We know they're wrong the whole time that we're doing them, but it's, it is a part of being human. So when you fail, when we fail as, as individuals or as a collective body, how do we process and pray through failure? How do we confess and acknowledge our sin in a way that is not going to let us be crippled or consumed but our, in our failure, but in a way that is going to be real and genuine and, and life-giving and restorative and ultimately transformative? And the Psalms have several beautiful examples where the author comes before God worshipfully. He admits his failing before God and asks for forgiveness and, and expresses this hope for restoration. And the Christian word for this process is repent or repentance. And what is so beautiful about the repentant Psalms is that while we sometimes as humans or maybe in a church, we, we focus on the aspect of just confessing our sin, Almost all of the prayers of repentance are actually filled just with joy and, and praise and worship of God. And I want to challenge us this morning to have that picture of repentance. That while it is difficult and it's uncomfortable and it means confronting our sin and it means that we might experience further pain or consequences, it can also be joy-filled and life-giving. And it is often the site where we see God's most transformative work on display. 
Repentance is so hopeful, and I think it's something that our world desperately needs right now. So if you could turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 51, we are gonna be going through verses one to 17 of that. And this is a very famous Psalm. It's attributed to David's confession before God concerning his failure with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And if you don't know the story, I recommend going back to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But David is ultimately, he's shown he abuses his power, he's an adulterer, he's a murderer, and it's considered one of his most deep, deeply shame-filled moments. And this psalm, Psalm 51, is thought to be his words of confession and repentance to God after he's called out by the prophet Nathan. So this is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, these things you will not despise. Theologian Walter Brueggemann, he calls the repentant psalms psalms of reorientation. They're part of a collection of the psalms where the author or the speaker, they acknowledge that they need to reorient themselves around God. And the author presents a picture of realignment with God and his will and a hoped for change moving forward. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of repentance and I think this psalm demonstrates that so beautifully. And in my time remaining, I really just want to kind of distill a few points about this psalm this morning. And the first comes from the very first line of the psalm. In verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Right from the very beginning of this psalm, David grounds himself in who God is. And that is the starting place of repentance. True repentance starts with God. And we see David's confidence in who God is. He knows he's done wrong. He knows he has sinned, and he's going to get to that in a minute. But the first declaration of the psalm is this foundational trust in the fact that God is full of mercy and unfailing love. And it's David's confidence in God's character that enables him to come before God. You know, David, and David doesn't have a skewed vision of God. He continues throughout the psalm. He declares the holiness of God, you know, the utter perfection and otherness of God. He recognizes that God is a judge, that he has the right to judge and punish David. And yet also, David also recognizes that God grants mercy, that God withholds from us that which we deserve because of his love 
for us. David trusts in the knowledge that God can and will cleanse him from his sin and forgive him for all the things that he has done wrong. And I think so many of us fear repentance before God or we avoid those dreaded words of, I'm sorry, I've screwed up, not only because we're prideful or because sin makes us uncomfortable, but because we don't have a very balanced view of who God is. We, we know that he's righteous and we know that he's holy and we're okay with that until we have to come before him and admit that we have done wrong. We worry that if we admit to our sin before God, that God is gonna use it as an excuse to punish us or we act as though God is you know, waiting in the wings in order to get us because we finally fessed up. And I'm, real, I'm not trying to say that sin doesn't have consequences, it does. It has very real earthly and spiritual consequences. But consequences aside, God does forgive. God is merciful. God does love us and he does forgive us. There's a Jewish prayer that is repeated in various incarnations throughout the Old Testament and David actually puts it in more than one psalm. He says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in loving kindness. David trusts in the character of God and he roots his prayer in this trust. David, before he ever addresses his own sin, he goes in faith and confidence before who God is, knowing he can trust God and also knowing that God can deal with his sin. And this is the first step of repentance, grounding yourself in who God is. Repentance starts with God. Secondly, as we ground ourselves in who God is, we will become increasingly aware of who we are in relation to God. You know, after David establishes that God is compassionate, he is merciful, he is able to cleanse our sin, David writes in verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David says in verse five that he was sinful from the moment of his birth. He's establishing, you know, I'm a human and therefore sin is gonna happen. And it's not an excuse. He's not trying to make an excuse. He is recognizing that there is a disparity between his own sinfulness and humanity and God's holiness. And it's actually a really beautiful picture of humility. And what is interesting in this section is that David is insisting that his sin is primarily against God. Now, he is probably being, you know, intentionally hyperbolic. David has certainly wronged other people in this situation. Um, but the idea is that just as repentance starts with God, so does um, this declaration that, that we have sinned. You know, our sin is first and foremost an affront against God. It goes against all that God wants for us and all that God is. You know, sin is a failure to live the way that God wants us to live. And when we fail others, we absolutely, we need to apologize and we need to acknowledge that failure and hurt, but our sin is always first an affront against God. You know, when we fall in the character of God, when we come before God in repentance, we are recognizing that we are incapable of being gods in our lives and that we need him because of it. That's why we need to be in a relationship with him because we cannot do this on our own. And these first two, um, these first two points, they really do have to happen in tandem with one another. They rely on one another. You know, God does not want us to be crushed by our imperfections or our failures. He doesn't want a, us to live lives of insecurity that are filled with shame. That's why he offers an ever-flowing forgiveness. That's, that's his act of love. You know, we have to lean into this character of God as our starting place and when we trust and acknowledge all that, our, all that God is, sorry, we recognize what we are in relation and that our sin is just an attempt to live life without God. And, and repent, repentance is the place where we recognize that this is not working. Living, in the living our lives our way, it's not working. 
And not only does David confess that you know, he's merely human and therefore he's gonna fail from time to fi- time, but David also acknowledges what sin has done to him and what sin does to us. You know, in, in verse eight, David asks that he will once again hear joy and gladness, which implies that you know, his sin and the weight of his sin is, ex- is preventing him from experiencing joy. In verse 11, David asks, he says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He, he's confessing to feeling alienated from God that he and God, they don't have this unbroken communion with one, with one another, and that they're not gonna have that again until David's sin is dealt with. You know, David would later say, save me from my guilt. David is very aware that sin is this weight in his life and that it puts a barrier between him and God, and as long as that sin is not dealt with, it will continue to put a barrier between him and God and will continue to put a barrier between us and God and between us and others. We need to feel the weight of our sin and the seriousness of our sin if we are gonna move to a place of restoration with God. And the psalm makes it really clear, forgiveness and restoration, they're available freely, but it requires a little bit of a deep cleaning. And David would actually spend several verses outlining this metaphorical cleansing process that he's gonna need to go through in order for his sin to be dealt with. Because he knows it runs deep and I think he is very aware of the horrible wreckage that is left in the wake of his sin. You know, my least favorite household chore is uh, kitchen duty. Um, and the thing I hate most is cleaning out the fridge. I can handle, you know, blood and guts and other kinds of mess, but moldy, rotting food is my kryptonite. I, I cannot handle it. I usually make Justin do it. I'll admit to it. And I think in dealing with our sin, we often approach, like I do, and maybe you do as well, this cleaning out of our fridge. You know, I don't mind the slightly bad stuff that sits at the front of the fridge. You know, the leftovers, they're not, not too many days old yet. They're not pleasant to deal with, but it's not a biggie, you know? I don't mind dealing with that stuff. But I avoid at all costs those things that have been sitting at the back of my fridge for way longer than I care to admit. You know, those things that got pushed in the back, sometimes accidentally, sometimes on purpose. And when you see them sitting at the back of your fridge and you know how long they've been there, you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to look at it. You don't want to have to confront the depth of how gross that is. We don't want to deal with the really messy, dirty, smelly stuff in our life. We don't want to look at the systemic, festering heart issues in our life and what they have led us to do. We wanna deal with the surface level stuff. We can deal and apologize for the white lie or the errant comment, but when it deals with, when we have to deal with the systemic things in our hearts that lead to those type of actions, we kinda just hope that dealing with the surface level stuff will be enough. But David makes it really clear that we cannot leave sin unearthed. In verse three, when he says, I know my sin and it's always before me, this, this idea of, is, of I know is I know intimately my sin. I am deeply aware and I can see the depth of my sin and it is always with me. I am carrying this burden with me and I can see the weight of its impact. As believers, we need to bombard the throne of grace of God, trusting in the steadfast love of God. It's there and it's available, but when we get to the throne of grace, we need to be very real when we get there. We are not truly repenting if we are not willing to get specific with how we have failed. I would love it if we could just kind of say a blanket, I'm sorry, once, and and hope that that covers everything, but that's not really how repentance works. That's not how relationships work. 
That's not how forgiveness and transform, transformation and reconciliation work. We cannot move beyond something that we cannot name and acknowledge. David says in verse six, surely you desire truth in my inmost parts. You want me to get honest about what is going inside of me. The parts of you that you don't want people to see, you need to get really honest with yourself and before God and maybe another person. I know for you and, or sorry, I know for me and maybe for you, I don't really want to look at my sin. I want to move past it really quickly because I don't want to acknowledge the impact that my sin has done on me or on other people that I'm in relationship with. Because knowing I hurt someone, it, it hurts me. But I think if we're going to be truly repentant, we need to acknowledge the damage that our sin can cause us to do on the people around us. You know, a repentant person, even though they know they're forgiven, they know that God loves them, it's, it, there's, beautiful, there's beautifulness or beauty in acknowledging those things. The repentant person still recognizes the consequences of their sin, that they have affected other people. And this is a crucial part of being repentant because willing to acknowledge the pain that we have caused others, it cultivates in us a sense of brokenness. You know, in, in verse 8, David talks about his bones feeling crushed. You know, he's walking with a sense of brokenness. And this idea of having a sense of brokenness, of being willing to look at what is lurking and, and rotting in the fridge of our life, it sounds unappealing. I get it. I fully do. I don't think it's meant to be easy or enjoyable, but it is redemptive. And it's a place that God works. And I think that God does some of his very best work in this place, this sense of brokenness in us. God can work with that. He can do something amazing with that. If we look at verse 17 towards the end of the psalm, David says that the sacrifices that God approves are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That God desires us to get to this place in the process of repentance and forgiveness. You know, God isn't surprised by the mess that he finds. You know, you coming before God and confessing before him, you're not going to shock him. He already knows what's there. And I think as, as sometimes as the worldwide church, as individual churches, as, as people of Christ, sometimes we just kind of stop at the confession of sin. And I think maybe for too long, for, you know, historically, the church focused that, oh, you must confess your sin, which you do, but I think we have often stopped there. But the psalm doesn't stop there. The acknowledgement of sin, it's just a step in the repentance process. You don't unearth your sin so that you can sit and dwell in it and feel insecurity and shame. Your sin does not get the last word in the, repent, in the repentive process. God gets the last word. One of the key truths we need to take away from this prayer of, prayer of repentance is the expectation and declaration that God brings renewal and reconciliation into our lives. David talks in the central section of this psalm about recreation and restoration. Repentance is ultimately redemptive, and in that it is beautiful. God, full of mercy and compassion, will do a healing transformative work, which is his to do and ours to join in. And it starts with us being broken and contrite, having a, a malleable heart. But just as repentance starts with God, it also ends in the amazing work of God. You know, God is not passive in regards to dealing with our sin. He's active and moving and working. Our sin is not bigger than God. 
And the gospel of Jesus Christ is predicated on the fact that we worship a God who is willing to confront our sin in a way that would ultimately defeat it. God is actively working to deal and defeat our sin, and that is the reason for praise and worship for, a God, for our God that we serve. And that's the praise that you see throughout this, but especially at the end of this psalm. We see David break into praise because God transforms him. God is doing a work in him through this process of repentance. So why does this matter? Well, I want to close out the, remaining of our, the remainder of our time together by kind of revisiting a very kind of quick declaration I made in the beginning, and that is that we live in a world that desperately needs repentance. And I think our, our forced isolation has made us pay a whole lot more attention to some of the things that are happening in our world. And maybe we need to open our eyes further, and we need to look a little further about where we need to repent. And I think we have seen people, both individuals and collectives, responding to implicit and explicit calls of repentance. But I think that this is happening because we need reconciliation in our world. Both as individuals, as churches, as groups, we long to see healing and reconciliation. And I want to be really clear here this morning, we need to repent for reconciliation to happen. We need to repent for reconciliation happening in ourselves and between us and God. We need repentance so that we can be reconciled with one another. We need repentance between the church and the world so that they can be reconciled. We need it between powerful people that have hurt others from their positions of authority and privilege. We need to repent as individuals, as a church body, as a privileged people, as a nation, for transformation, healing, and reconciliation to happen. We cannot be reconciled and saved from the sin that we do not name and repent from. And I do think that this includes sin that we have been passively complicit in. You know, there's a passage in the Old Testament where God responds to his people who have come to worship him. And God says this, he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, if they will repent, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. If my people repent, I will forgive them and I will heal their land. You know, one of the first sermons Jesus ever preaches starts with the words repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus connects repentance with the building and bringing of the kingdom of heaven to earth. The reconciliation that we long to see on this earth, whatever is possible on this earth, with others, with ourselves, it's not gonna happen if we don't repent. It's not gonna happen if we can't realign ourselves with God's will. I wanna end on just one final note. In the last part of Psalm 51 that we were reading, after David comes before God, he trusts God, he humbles himself before God, he acknowledges his sin, he declares a restoration, he is confident will happen. David talks about teaching others God's ways, that because of the reconciliation and the healing that David experiences, he will proclaim to others the truth of who God is, the truth of God's love, that sinners will come back and they will see God. And I think it's such a beautiful picture of how a person who is reconciled with God and transformed by God, they become a light in this world. They become a testimony to the love and the grace 
and the reconciliation ministry that God offers. And I wanna just end this morning thinking about that, that what it might, what it might look like to be people of repentance and reconciliation and the witness that would give to our world.